Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Welcome to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists and in keeping with current trends, we're going to call this podcast One of Twelve. It's, it's a thing, apparently. Which means I then have to say for our first number one of 2015... Is this a new crude theme <laughs> yes, that you're introducing? because I'm certainly not calling it number two next month. Uh, we'll be hearing how a mission to map the galaxy is getting on and how very soon we'll all be able to get an astronaut's eye view from the International Space Station. You're seeing what we call the Superman view. You're seeing this 50-kilometre swath as the space station flies along around the ground. You're seeing these high-resolution videos that, that target in on a small urban area or something else. And the point is, it'll be just available to the public. Well, we're joined by one of the leaders of Europe's 2018 rover mission to Mars, Professor Andrew Coates from University College London's Mallard Space Science Laboratory. And a welcome return to a guest from our very first Space Boffins podcast back in July 2011. Please welcome BBC Science correspondent Jonathan Amos. <laughs> Although the last time um, you and I met, John, was only last month at Cape Canaveral for the Orion launch. Any particular missions you're looking forward to this year? Oh, I, I have unfinished business this year, Comet 67P with Rosetta, which is just going to get more exciting. But the highlight for me, I think, this year is going to come in July when New Horizons goes past Pluto. Can't wait for that. We'll be talking about both those uh, later on. Uh, now, in four years from now, from January, the European Space Agency will be hoping for something like this. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on Mars. That was NASA's 2013 landing on Mars. Now, ESA aims to land its ExoMars rover in January 2019, and Andrew Coates will be leading those cheers. Although it'll probably be more sort of European, won't it, Andrew? They'll all sort of shuffle around and look at monitors and stuff, and there'll be lots of champagne. I think Europeans can be very excited as well. We saw <laughs> that with the Philae landing. Absolutely fantastic just to be there in the operations centre. But, of course, we're looking forward to our own mission, yes, in, in 2019, landing on Mars. Fantastic. Now, this this includes the, the first rover to be sent to Mars specifically to search for life, not just the signs of life, but actually to look for life. Yes, it will look for it will look for signs of life and the environment of life. But yes, it will be instrumented to look for carbonates and things like that, to look for chirality as well. Uh, chirality? That is, that's right-handed and left-handed left uh, yeah. hydrocarbons. <laughs> and so it will be able to do that. But the key new thing really about the ExoMars rover is it can drill underneath the surface of Mars up to two metres. So nothing has done that before. Curiosity can drill up to five centimetres under the surface and has made, made some fabulous discoveries doing it. But we'll be able to go... Below 
the oxidized surface and the sort of harsh environment which there is on the surface to look for signs of life underneath that surface. That's where you should look for life on Mars. So two metres is a, is a crucial depth, is it? Um, two metres is as far as the drill can get. So, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's as good as we can do you know, with, with the current technology. But um, there are some crucial aspects about it. We did some calculations a few years ago looking at the radiation environment on the surface of Mars because that's one of the things, of course, over time, which will affect um, possible life underneath the surface. And so two metres is, is, you know, a good distance to be going. Um, uh, ideally more than that, but actually, um, you know, one to two metres should give us a really good chance. Uh, and John, we should say ExoMars has been up and down over the last few years. And it's, it's actually two missions rather than one. It's a yeah. 2016 and a, a 2018. Yeah, this is, uh, this is the space soap opera. Of <laughs> <laughs> this is, and they always end on a cliffhanger, uh, which usually means is it going to continue? But somehow they find money. Uh, to continue with it. Yeah, and it started out as a small demonstration mission, I think, what, 2005, was it? Um, yeah, well, we proposed in 2004, yeah, so yeah. very soon after yeah. Moonball, but uh, yeah. Um, and then people got grand ideas for it, and then it got too big, and then they had to find a different rocket, and, and then the Americans came on board, and they went, mm, maybe not, and then they disappeared, and then the Russians are back on, on side now, and it's just up and down and up and down, but it's been split into two missions. Yeah, there's an orbiter uh, that's going 2016, which will... Uh, do some very interesting atmospheric science, but also be the, uh, the communications relay for the rover uh, when it gets down um, in in 2019. One should say just about this drilling thing. One of the one of the I think one of the big lessons we've had from Curiosity is that if you pick the right place, mm. you don't have to go too deep to find uh, potentially some very interesting chemistry. I think that's been one of the big lessons. Uh, from MSL Mars Science Laboratory is that if you find surfaces that have recently eroded, if you know where to look, then you may not have to go down two metres to find some very, very interesting things. So are you looking, like Curiosity, Andrew, at, at places that were perhaps wet... Uh, yeah, so so actually we had a landing site selection meeting just before Christmas, and we're down to four sites now. So two of those involve clays on the surface, which are sort of signs of um, of hydrated minerals on the surface. The other two involve um, rivers, you know, old river valleys and deltas and things like that, which were on the surface. There's no rivers now, but these are dried up um, evidence of, of rivers being there. And so the possibility of looking for life there is great. So all four of those sites, actually, if cells were transported there, they would have survived. And so these are great places to look. We're going to Marthalis. That's where we're going. Uh, not necessarily because of engin- <laughs> <laughs> there are engineering constraints. Uh, it would be great because, of course, the Welsh for, for Mars being Moth and everything, yeah. but, uh, which I can't pronounce. But anyway, that's one of the great spots. And, of course, that's a, one of the places with the clays um, or phyllosilicates, as, they, as they're called. But there are three other possibilities as well. We're studying all of them. Uh, all of them have, have really good possibilities for, for, do, for doing experiments. It's going to be tough to get down, I have to say. I mean, you've got to go quite deep into the atmosphere in order to break. You've got to avoid dusty places because, you know, dust plays havoc with everything, as we've seen with with previous missions. Um, And, you know, you're very constrained around the equator as well because of solar panels that we have on on ExoMars. So there are actually not that many places that we can do. Once you then sort of factor in where the interesting science place is, um, you're, you're quite restricted. 
Yeah, so the first workshop we had last year was doing exactly that, you know, putting the engineering constraints and the science constraints together. And you come maybe to about 10 sites, but of which these four would be great. But Morse is just on the edge of what is achievable technologically with the landing because it's Europe and Russia working together with the um, Russians doing the landing system. So it's going to be a fantastic landing on Mars. Morse well. Phallus. <laughs> you heard it here. Yeah, we heard it here. <laughs> we'll see. Now, the rover's being built in the UK and you, Andrew, are responsible for the main panoramic camera on the actual rover. It looks a little bit like the handlebars of a scooter, I think, <laughs> with the uh, two cameras yeah. Yeah, you, at either end of the handle. That's right. If you imagine that at about a, the height of a person above the surface, but the eyes, the two of the eyes, are, are separated more than the human eyes are by 50 centimetres. So we can get actually better stereo reconstruction than humans can do. We also, on each of those, we have 11 filters to look at different wavelengths, different colours of light, and putting that together, we can do a good job on the mineralogy, in particular, looking for the water-bearing minerals. And so it will be the best scientific camera to have been taken to Mars to actually do that job. So in, form, in terms of getting the context um, for, the, for the rover mission, this is exactly what we need. And there the, are other instruments for context as well, and then the drilling is the, is the other most interesting. You thing. mentioned this context. I, I, I read that, you know, same, saying that um, scientists are looking for textual information on the rocks, which yeah. sounded a very sort of arty-farty way of saying <laughs> something basic. But So what do you actually mean by textual information? Yeah, well, if you imagine um, the 3D reconstruction gives us a sort of shape of the, um, of, of the surface, the shape of the rocks and so on. But we have a high-resolution camera on board as well as the wide-angle cameras. And that is the thing which you can lay over the top and give you the texture. So it's like the sort of graininess of the rocks or, you know, the, the sort of size of of the different constructions within the rocks. And so it gives so you it's that. like the surface, whether it's pitted or, yeah. or, or, it, it, or, or, or you know, rough to the touch, you'll be able to tell. Yeah, that. rough and also different colours. Um, I mean, most of Mars is covered by dust, but, but nevertheless, you know, bits which are not, so a bit under outcrops and things like that, one can look for different colours of rocks. And so, so looking for those, um, uh, that's something we'll be able to do with PanCam. We're also, we've also packed atmospheric science into it as well, so we can look at water in the atmosphere of Mars between uh, where we are on the surface and, and the sun, so that will tell us how much water is in the atmosphere. So all of that gives us a great context in terms of the geology, the atmosphere. We'll also be able to look at dust devils and things like that passing on the surface. Imagine that on Mars, you know, just, just a wonderful opportunity. Well, to congratulations. I know it's been a, 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 an immensely long wait. Do you think this is a mission worth waiting for, John? Uh, most certainly is, and I've waited for it a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, haven't we one. all? Yes. But let's talk about something really exciting, which is data policies okay so one of the <laughs> one of the uh, one of the disappointments i think of the last year with rosetta at comet 67p has been the absence of imagery from the main scientific cameras on the spacecraft i'm talking here it's about Osiris. the the osiris mm-hmm. camera system now why was that it's because the scientists there uh, want some some primacy some priority in making the discoveries at the comet so we've had very very few images from osiris uh, contrast that with um, Curiosity now, which, I mean, I wake up every morning and I can see new pictures from Mars downloaded overnight. And if you're mad like me, you even put them on your iPhone and you can stitch them together into making panoramas. So the question I have for Andrew is, what are your data policies going to be uh, when you arrive uh, at Mars in 2019? How are you going to approach that problem? Yeah, this is a combination of of what ESA wants. So in the science management plan of the mission is this six-month exclusion time. From our point of view, we want to be as open as possible with with the data, uh, but there are limits. And so so what we might be able to do, for example, is to put JPEG-type 
type um, uh, things, which is not the complete resolution of the data, but highly compressed images um, on for people to be able to look at and, and see the, the position, and also release you know some of the some of the detailed images as well. So you know, as far as I'm concerned, we want to be as open as possible within the it, limits. Is of this the... about the egos of scientists over the importance of the mission, which essentially we've all paid for as as taxpayers? Well, the science, of course, is being done behind the, ski- the scenes anyway. So the authorists, but they is, want is their being... name, don't they? They want their name on the nature paper or the yeah, science paper. Yeah. That, isn't that is what, what it's about? And, and there is a there is a bit. There's always a, a sort of big sort of um, problem about science and nature and putting putting stuff in there with the embargoes and so on. So putting data um, out which which could write the science paper for you is, is you know is um, one has to be careful with that. But. Um, Yes, egos do come into it. I mean, we, we do. We did have a, um, a science team meeting just before, well, just before the other meeting, the land science selection meeting, um, and we discussed exactly this issue. And so, on, amongst the PanCam team, you know, we're, we're formulating the policy at the moment. As far as I'm concerned, you know, being open, uh, I fully agree about taxpayers um, having paid for this, and you know, we want to share what we're doing. The excitement of actually the exploration. I think one way of doing that is um, is to have images, uh, you know, at least to some extent. I mean, to be fair to the Osiris team, I mean, they're 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 neck deep um, in in running a mission, um, so they're under enormous pressure to to help the rest of uh, the instrument teams, getting them the information they need to to give them the context for their data, uh, whilst trying to write up some papers yeah. as well. And, you know, if you just dump the information out there, which anybody can then go in uh, and pull something out, you may miss, you know, that extraordinary discovery. Um, and if you've put 10, 20 years into the mission, sounds a little bit unfair. There is an alternative model, which is that we pay for it, uh, it goes out there and, and somehow that will supercharge discovery because then you have everybody diving in to pull mm. out as much as you can. But it then needs recognition for the people yeah. who developed that mission and, and led that instrument. So, the, the, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into this, you know, the calibration of it to, to make sure it's giving you the right illumination and so on, the right, um, the right colours and all that. There's lots of calibration work. So there's lots of work behind the scenes. And the other thing is images are obviously more understandable than the other types of data which come back. Um, other instruments on Rosetta, for example, one which we're involved with, which, uh, which is not as immediately understandable by the public. And so that's a distinction of maybe of the, of the data type. Yeah, Who'd have thought we'd be talking about data <laughs> policy on the Space Boffins podcast? <laughs> Funnily enough, we didn't tease that at the top of the podcast. Um, still to come, we will be uh, looking at some of the other missions of the next uh, 12 months in space. And one year on, how is that map of the galaxy going? This is the Space Boffins podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, spaceboffins.com and listen to our previous podcast on the Naked Scientist website. Just search for Space Boffins. Now, 2015 is shaping up to be another exciting year in space. NASA's New Horizons spacecraft will fly by the dwarf planet Pluto. UK astronaut Tim Peake will start his mission to the International Space Station. And a Canadian company promises to deliver near live pictures of the Earth from space. Yes, a year ago, two new HD cameras were fitted to the International Space Station. Built in the UK, they're designed to provide free images and live video from space in near real time. And the company doing this is Earthcast. I spoke to co-founder Scott Larson and asked him why it's taken so long to get the cameras up and running. 
We've spent basically all of 2014 uh, commissioning, calibrating, getting our ground segment up and running, hopefully to the point of beginning real operations very, very quickly. We encountered a quite serious delay in that the uh, robotic arm, the biaxial pointing platform that our high-resolution video camera sits on, has some technical glitches, and those glitches have uh, cost us about six months uh, of delay and a fair bit of uh, expense. But we have a solution, which is a combination of hardware and software. The uh, hardware elements launched in late November, and so we will be seeing that installed by the cosmonauts, and we'll see uh, touch wood the beginning of operations on the HRC uh, in early 2015 sometime. Uh, what sort of technical problems, Ben? Can you give us any details? Uh, in essence, the BPP had some stiction and friction issues that meant that it didn't g- give us the smoothness of, of the motion that we needed, it, in particular to hold a target as a space station flies along at 7 kilometers a second. So you need very, very accurate and very, very smooth kind of robotic motion. And so this thing it has some jerky motions that kick in. And so that's the trick. That's the thing that's been causing us some tr- trouble. So when it is all up and running, um, you know, maybe a little later than you hoped, what will you be offering? So the main thing we're offering is a platform where we're putting the vast majority of our data out to the public for free, in essence. Don't think of it as a competitor to Google Earth. We think it as something really quite different. But it's highly dynamic, and you're seeing the Earth move, and you're seeing the, the, you know, what we call the Superman view. You're seeing this 50-kilometer swath as the space station flies along around the ground. You're seeing these high-resolution videos that, that target in on a small urban area or something else. And the point is, it'll be just available to the public. The sort of dirty little secret in, in the Earth observation industry is that a tiny fraction of the images that are collected in space are ever made available to the public. And, fr- and frankly, a tiny, tiny fraction are ever made available to the public on anything like a rapid basis, i.e. even within days of acquisition. And so we're using the ISS uh, and we're using the cloud to try and change both of those things. And this will be what, live views, almost live views of the Earth? Yeah, it, it's, it, the live is a function of where exactly the ground stations are, so within hours. But in some cases, because we'll be using NASA's TDRIS geostationary system, it could be within minutes in some cases. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing has been done like this before. Do you think that will change people's views of, of the Earth? I mean, could it have that bigger impact? So that certainly was the original vision. Astronauts talk about something called the overview effect, and that is the, you know, this profound sense of wonder and awe, majesty that people have when they see the planet from outer space. We very much hope to give people, albeit in a very small way, a taste of, of that experience. And what about the, the space station? I suppose it will make people more aware there is a space station there. Uh, we hope so too. I mean, it's an extraordinary piece of, of uh, engineering. Uh, it has done some amazing science. It's now moving into a kind of commercial phase of operations, and we're not the first to use it commercially by any means, but we understand that we represent the largest purely private sector investment in the ISS to date. Uh, We think it's an amazing platform. How will you make money out of this, given that you are saying, well, here's all this wonderful free data, here's the, these wonderful free images of the Earth? Well, so we, uh, we have the two cameras on the Russian, American side. We have a deal to put two more instruments on the ra- American side. One's an uh, optical and one's a, a radar. And we make uh, money in, in principally three ways. Uh, one, we sell the images, sell the pixels to people who buy them, and that really only needs a small percentage of our capacity. Uh, we're moving into data analytics in terms of collecting imagery and processing high-value-added information and selling that, for example, to businesses. And then the third is this uh, platform, this web platform. And that is is fundamentally a a kind of a dot-com model 
where the more eyeballs we bring to the site, the more sticky, quote-unquote, we make the site, the longer people stay, then that site becomes its own engine of monetization. So in terms of advertising around the site, yeah. um, adverts, whatever? Yeah, we want to be a little careful. We don't want to cheapen the experience. So there may be some modest advertising, but I think the bigger monetization comes from apps. So we will make, be making our data available and allow third-party app developers to come in, use the data, use the platform to create applications, and then sell those applications on to your mobile device or whatever else. It's almost like an iTunes model, but with Earth Observation as its focus. Co-founder of Earthcast, Scott Larson. Nice use of the word stiction, I, th- I thought there. <laughs> <laughs> are, we, are we excited about this? Is this just another time waste? Is this something like Facebook? You just sit at your desk and sort of look at images of the Earth all day. It's a, an interesting new development. Uh, if you've seen the simulations or you've seen the, the video from a similar operation, which is Skybox Imaging, which was purchased by Google last year, uh, it's impressive. Um, you can certainly see cars... Uh, lorries moving up and down the highway. If you're a news organization, and this is one of the uh, the groups that they're going to target to to sell imagery, you know, you can imagine seeing the, the million people in the mall when the president gives his inauguration speech, uh, having the satellite fly over and, and show that would be interesting. One of the questions that I, I haven't had a chance to, to raise with Scott or, or, or Wade, his brother, who sort of lead this company, it's, it's an interesting conundrum uh, for them, and that is that they're based on the Russian end of the platform currently. Uh, what would happen if a news organization wanted to see the tanks roll into Ukraine? Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> would that data be cut off? Would it be available? I, do, I don't know what the answer is to that question, but news organizations would certainly have concerns about that. But it is a case of suck it and see here. Um, news organizations will have to see, you know, there'll be a, an initial interest for sure, absolutely. But long term, the companies will have to decide, TV companies, whether it's just a gimmick or, or whether there is something real in, in terms of their storytelling that they need this imagery. I thought it was interesting, given what we've just been discussing, that uh, Scott mentioned that dirty little secret that hardly any space images in percentage-wise, are actually released. I mean, this is the big explosion that's that's coming in the next few years. So there's another small company called Planet Labs. They call them the Flock, uh, which are these CubeSats uh, that are being released from the space station. Again, the space station, this, this monolith, this great big beast that we've put up there, it's actually starting to do some quite quite innovative stuff now. Um, <laughs> uh, it was always doing innovative stuff. Come on, John. Um, uh, I've got Andrew sitting next to me, and he's not a great fan of human we space flight. We, yeah. we will come on to human <laughs> space flight in, in just a moment. He's got to keep in his, his good books. But, no, they're, they're, you know, and, and we've, we've seen with um, a lot of sort of institutional Earth observation missions how you know, they have been really quite restricted in, in the data that they've released. But there has been this big switch, and it was led by Landsat, this fantastic American series of, of satellites, which suddenly decided, you know what, we're just going to give it away. Um, and that really led to an explosion in terms of scientists going in, pulling the data out. And the Europeans now, the European Space Agency with the European Union and its Sentinel spacecraft system has taken that open data policy as well. So if you have a, a, a computer that's linked up to a, a data feed from the European Space Agency, you can suck as much of this stuff into your systems as possible. And we really hope um, that that is going to supercharge discovery at planet Earth. And I, I've 
you know, I've seen some of the evidence of that, even with the, the very first Sentinel. It's very clear to me that that data policy, we're back with data policy, <laughs> that that data policy really is Just going to transform Just stop saying data policy. Things. No one will ever notice. You, you need, we need a new word for that. Yes. We need, well, I know we, we should really try and keep you happy by going on to an unmanned mission, but Andrew, <laughs> I, I, I think let's risk upsetting you even further. Uh-oh. Tim Peake, manned yeah. space flight. I mean, for Britain... Yeah. The UK, the space, UK station. space Agency, this is yeah. a dream come true, really. Absolutely. Do you put your cynicism aside? When, well, the when space station like is there, so why not try and use it? You know, I mean, a, a UK astronaut, great thing, you know, great possibility to, to go up there. Um, hasn't cost an awful lot to be able to actually have that opportunity to do it, and it will inspire a lot of people. Of course, the unmanned uh, missions are very inspiring as well. We've seen that with Phil I, you know, with the tweeting and so on and, and everything like that. Massive media coverage. Oh, brilliant, brilliant me- media coverage. And, um, and because um, of sort of personalising the rovers, uh, of the, of the um, you know, the, the Phil I and, um, uh, and, and the orbiter as well. And that was done with Curiosity as well. That's been very, uh, very useful, you know, to have them actually appearing to talk to you then why do you need people, you know? Because that's, <laughs> <laughs> so, you but, make, uh, so we can send them a virtual That's an interesting new yeah. argument, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, <laughs> uh, but, but Tim Peake going up, yes, absolutely, you know, take the opportunity, do it, and... Um, it, and uh, Fantastic for, for, I'm sure, a lot of schools who will be very interested. Well, okay, I think the, the education, I mean, we should just yeah. mention the education from this Absolutely. mission. It, it's tremendous. The, yeah. amount of, uh, the amount of inspiration that's going to come out from having a British astronaut on the International yes. Space Team for six months. Yeah. Again, human spaceflight does not rock my socks. Oh, see, okay? I love it. But I have to admit that when an astronaut walks into the room, the kids just go, oh. Not just the mm. children. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go on to, this will make you both happy then. The big science mission of 2015 is New Horizons. It launched nine years ago when Pluto was a planet then, yeah. <laughs> so everything's changed. It's now three billion miles away. Science is about to begin. Flyby happening July. Pluto itself, it seems to have lost its... It, it's been downgraded. So does this mean that this mission, in terms of its arrival, is going to be... Less to look forward oh, to no. as a result? Oh, no, 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 no. Actually, it's in this class now of, of dwarf planets, which actually is, for me, is the really interesting class now. I mean, we've, we've done the terrestrial planets. We've done the gas giants. There's this third class of uh, the dwarf planets, and they are by far the most numerous in the solar system. And we've got, I don't know what, 10, 13 of them now that are mm. kind of in that sort mm. of, you know, a few hundred kilometers across, 1,000, 2,000 kilometers across. Pluto is the, is the best example of it. But there are many, many more out there, and we just haven't had the, the capability uh, to go after them. And you should think of New Horizons as a sentinel because in the, in the next uh, 15, 20 years, we're going to get monster telescopes on Earth. European, um, what do they call it? The EELT. Oh, okay. Is it the extremely, extremely yeah, elevated, large, elongated? Goodness knows. <laughs> yeah, you know, I know Forty meters across. The Americans are building one that's thirty meters across, and we will be able to see really faint objects in the distant solar system with that. And these 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 dwarf planets are going to become apparent to us. And if you do the numbers, if you look at the stats. Uh, there are objects out there that could be really quite big. I mean, we're talking, you know, Mercury, sort of Mars-type size. size. Well, I was amazed. I, I hadn't even realised that Pluto had five known moons. Mm. So that, to me, was just like a, 
good grief. That made me stop mm. and look and made me think, well, actually, yeah. there is a lot to learn and quite about a few the of them edge of our solar system. Discovered recently, yes, because mm. Chiron, of course, we've known about for a long time and the, the iconic Hubble image of, uh, of seeing both Pluto That's and Chiron five. together. Yeah. I just yeah, thought, how did ones, this yeah. pass me by? And so, so one may be very small, you know, 10 to 20 kilometres maybe only, and, and the others maybe 100 kilometres, something like that. So, so tiny. So it's a little solar system in itself, but of dwarf, um, ice dwarf But there have been ice. There's the, the key word there because there has been criticism from some people saying, well, you're just going out there and you're just going to see a load of ice, a load of icy rocks, a load yeah, of icy moons. But the, the thing is they have to get there quickly in order to see Pluto's atmosphere because Pluto is in this elliptical orbit which takes it sometimes in the inside the orbit of Neptune, which it was in, in 89, and then going out towards the, the aphelion, the furthest distance from the sun, which is in after 2100 sometime, 2120 or something like that. And during that time, the atmosphere of Pluto actually collapses. And so we have to sort of hurry up and get there to actually do some measurements of the of the very thin atmosphere which Pluto has. And so that's one of the interesting things. There's even the possibility that atmosphere is being shared with Charon. There's a new um, sort of prediction of, of, about that, which is uh, which is very interesting. The planet itself, sh- or the ice dwarf object itself, should, should be interesting. <laughs> should be object. interesting to look at. We have seen others. I mean, there, there's Triton, you know, one of the moons of, of Neptune, which is also a captured uh, one of these objects. There's also Phoebe at Saturn, which is one of those which we looked at with the Cassini mission a few years ago. Uh, but this will be the first one in situ, um, sort of doing what it normally does with these moons. There are others with moons as well. There's, there's lots of interesting things to look at in this flyby mission. Only and seven on instruments on board, though, John. Do you think um, that's enough to, uh, to get as good info? Uh, so here's the crazy thing about New Horizons, OK? So we're, we're, what, five, kilom- uh, five billion kilometres, five kilometres, five billion <laughs> kilometres from Earth, OK? So it's a long way. They have a 15-watt transmitter, okay, which is like one of them little lamps in a hotel lounge that you can't see by. Okay, It's that small. All right? So at that distance, with that size of transmitter, you're talking about a bit rate of something like about 3,000 bits per second. All right? Remember dial-up? Yes. It's worse than dial-up. Oh my goodness. It's going to take an hour to get one picture down, one compressed picture. It's going to take 16 months to get all of the information off from that brief flyby. So it's going to feel like an orbiter mission. I know it's a flyby, you know, zoom, bang, we're gone. But it's going to take 16 months from then to get all of that information off and back to Earth. So we're going to have these constant updates uh, from uh, from New Horizons about Pluto as the scientists go through that information uh, as it comes back. Yeah. Now, the other, if we're talking about sort of almost planets, the other mission to think about is, is Dawn, and that's sooner than New Horizons. Just in March, uh, very soon, it actually gets to Ceres. And so this is one of the asteroids um, in the asteroid belt um, in between Mars and Jupiter. And it's a very interesting one because it's a, it's a watery object. It's got water ice underneath the surface. In fact, quite a lot of it, we think. Looking at that in detail is going to be something which is uh, fascinating in the next few months as well. It looks like a planet, this Yeah, Ceres. again, it, it is an ice dwarf object the same as Pluto and that's the same r- as all that's these That's almost other... like data policy is a rubbish thing. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds Kind-a-bell like you almost like have to redefine these things. If it, when is an asteroid... Well, a dwarf planet. The, the, the redefinition had, uh, you know, happened in the in, in two thousand and six. You know, the same year that um, the New Horizons was actually launched. Now, um, ice dwarf planets. These are these are what these things are. And so, there's a particular category. You know, so we it has can't to be, call them asteroids anymore. Um, it's it's almost spherical. I mean, we can call them asteroids. It's part <laughs> of the asteroid belt. Um, so, yes. I mean, the definition, yes, it does not exclude calling it an asteroid as well. Oh, okay. So, um, but but it, it sort of joins the other objects. But the the existence of water there. Um, is something which uh, which is very exciting and takes us on to other 
cometary missions as well. I mean, Rosetta, one of its exciting new results was the deuterium to hydrogen ratio, which turned out to be much higher than expected, which means that probably those comets from the very outer solar system are not the source of Earth's water. Can you infer that, though, just from one result from one comet? There are other results from other comets. So the Halley's Comet also was higher, but um, but Hartley 2 turned out it was roughly the Earth's um, uh, deuterium to hydrogen ratio. But it's saying that this particular type of comet in this, in, in this particular... So the jury's orbit, still out whether the comets jury is still out, but, are but, responsible But asteroids have the upper hand at the moment, and these new me- measurements at Ceres are going to, be, going to be very interesting in looking at that. And also possible future missions, like we're working on one to one to a main belt comet. Um, and so that, uh, that is something which could perhaps in the future... Well, another mission that's likely to deliver new findings is the European Gaia mission. It was launched just over a year ago. It took six months to begin its science, but Gaia is now busy charting a three-dimensional map of our galaxy. That's about one billion stars. Now, I was at the Netherlands at a public open day of ESA's technical facility, STEC, recently, and caught up with Gaia project scientist Timo Prusty to find out how the mission was going. The most important progress is that we have commissioned the spacecraft. So this means that we have checked that all the parts are working and everything is functioning. And also we have started to calibrate so that we understand really what the measurements, what we are measuring in engineering units, what does it mean in astronomy, what we in the end want to give out. You've started formally mapping these stars. What sort of stage are you up to at the moment? Well, we are actually having an extremely boring mission (laughs) because what we want to do, we just want to scan the sky the same way for five years. So we started in July and we will just continue doing exactly the same because that's the purpose of this mission. And when will you have considered that you've mapped the entire Milky Way? How many years is it going to take? Our nominal mission is five years, so in five years we do achieve the accuracies what, what are needed for to get the science done, what we really want to do. But uh, hopefully we can put a couple of years on top of it uh, and get the extra bonus, as all the scientists always hope. It always seems to be that a spacecraft has that built-in couple of years as a just-in-case. Is that true? It is on, done also on purpose because you might actually end up uh, being at the wrong side of the things which you don't know exactly. So you want to build some margins. And if then everything is working as expected, then you can use the margin for something uh, useful. And what will be done with all this data? Because you're going to have an enormous amount of data at the end of it. There will be stars that have never been catalogued before. We'll expand our knowledge of the Milky Way. You know, what else can you do? I mean, it's it's mind-boggling, really. Yeah, it is a sort of peculiar thing that our own Milky Way, we know very little of. We know of our solar system, of other planets... And then we are part of a, a Milky Way galaxy, but that one we don't know. And th- that's the purpose of Gaia. We are measuring the stars and understand where they are, what are the distances, and also how they are moving. So when we know how they are moving, we can actually look back in time. Where did they come from? So how did our Milky Way was, was formed? But we can also look to the future, where the stars are going, and see what is going to happen with our Milky Way. So when do you expect we'll start getting the first surprises? Maybe it's not a surprise, but we got already the first supernova uh, with our... Oh, I saw that, yes, uh, yeah. ...with the science alert uh, pipeline. So it's, it is a surprise because we didn't know about it. But on the other hand, it's not a surprise because in the end, when we have everything running smoothly, we expect few a day. So more science to come, more stars to come, more supernovas to come. I think uh, we have a very thick book of all the anticipated science, what Gaia will do. 
But of course, in the end, maybe the most exciting will be that one, which we didn't think about and which is not in the book and which I don't know at the moment. Gaia project scientist Timo Prusty. I love the way he described it as boring. We've I talked know. about data policy and a man <laughs> on who's talked how boring his I mission is. I think it is. was very tongue-in-cheek the way he said that. Well, I, I think we, I think we ought to continue with the, the data policy <laughs> issue, <laughs> issue here because what's, what's very interesting about Gaia as a mission is that all of that... Inf- I mean, there is so much data that it is impossible even for, you know, the astronomers, um, whether they've got PhDs or students or whatever, to go through all of this data. It is immense, mm. absolutely immense. And so they are going to take this, this idea of allowing the public to get in there and dive and see what sort of discoveries they can make. You know, like along, an assistance science yeah, project. Along yeah, along the kind of sort of Zooniverse thing that we, mm. our friend uh, Chris Lintott at Sky at Night and, and Oxford University uh, has been doing. And they hope, um, you know, that school children will be able to make discoveries. They said to me that, you know, within about three hours of, of going into a, a classroom uh, of kids, they would be able to make a discovery in that, in that <sighs> data pool because there is just so much there. Andrew, without mentioning the words data or policy, <laughs> um, just a final thought on how many of these missions are, are European. It's great, isn't it? Very or many of them. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a great time, actually, for European space science. I mean, Rosetta and Phil and I have really shown that over the last year. Um, but going forward, I mean, Rosetta... Hopefully, Philae itself will wake up. The orbiter, um, hopefully, well, will continue going. I mean, that's that's almost assured. The comet gets to its closest distance to the sun this summer. So there's fantastic work coming out of that all of this year. A couple of the other missions are US, but actually the European parts of space science at the moment are going extremely well. Well, thanks very much to our guests, Professor Andrew Coates from the Mallard Space Science Laboratory and uh, BBC Science correspondent Jonathan Amos. Do visit our Facebook page for pictures of a space shuttle duck, exoplanet travel posters and Sue's latest collection of space stamps. It's like a Venn diagram of geekiness. Um, We also promised to get a proper answer to Michael from Denver's question about space planes. Space Boffins is produced by Boffin Media in partnership with the Naked Scientists and we're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. We're back next month with Two of Twelve. Not seven of nine, I'm afraid. We've been looking forward, so let's finish by looking back. Here's the launch of the first manned Gemini mission, Gemini 3, from March 1965. Now, as you listen to this, I want you to compare and contrast the tone of the launch commentary with what we heard earlier during the Mars landing. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Zero. Ignition. And we have a liftoff. We have a liftoff at 24 minutes after the hour. There's a roll program. All right, roger roll. Flight plus 10 seconds. Rising very nicely. Cabin pressure climbing. Okay, your roll is completed. Roger roll, complete. There goes the pitch. All right, roger pitch. You're on your way, Molly Brown. Yeah, man.